still have it on camera because I'm recording on Zoom, so. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I mean, yeah. <laughs> We've all had a Creed day. It's okay. Welcome to Mysteretical, where we take a theoretical approach to solving mysteries. I'm Lynn. And I'm JP. So grab your notebook, tax, and some string because we're diving into Edward Harold Bell and the 11 who went to heaven. Do you know it? Is this a cult? No. Okay. Ed Bell Are you thinking says- there is a... Oh, I was going to say there is like a heaven, heaven's gate. Is heaven's gate, of. yeah, but... yeah. Ed Bell does sound familiar. It's not a cult. Does this take place in a city that I used to live in? Close. Not, I don't think you ever lived there, but it's close. Okay. You might, you, okay, so you're probably gonna know, know it. It is like super huge, but I think the way it's covered in most podcasts is not the way I'm trying to cover it. All right. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but really quick, I wanted to talk about something. It's not exciting. It's like a bad thing, but it's like a good thing. My housekeeping, unless you have housekeeping. Oh, right, right. No, I don't know. Oh, shit. So I would like to say that the U.S. has been investigated and charged with crimes against humanity and human rights violations, and no one is talking about it. Wow. I'm going to do time. like super brief, like what we were charged like our charges um okay uh one article i did read did this cool thing that said the trial took place in washington heights nyc and then it said aka turtle island lenape land and i just thought that was really cool so i want to share that so the 2021 international tribunal heard testimony in regards to police killings against black brown and indigenous peoples that was charge one Charge two was mass incarcerations. They addressed the 13th Amendment, how the law is used as a weapon of war against black, brown, and indigenous peoples. Our third charge was political prisoners slash POWs, which represented the criminalization of legitimate political struggles, particularly of black, brown, and indigenous peoples. They also note that the U.S. is the only industrialized nation in the world that denies the existence of political prisoners. Our Fourth, where am I? Fourth charge was environmental racism. They discussed the impact of environmental violence and how that the climate crisis disproportionately impacts black, brown, and indigenous people, i.e. pipelines like poisoning water and air, and how America values profit over people. We we're also tra- charged with public health inequities for both physical and mental health and how the government's response to COVID-19 has been inadequate and incompetent federal response to this crisis. This one was in general, but they also mentioned the structural racism affecting access to health care. They also discussed forced sterilization in food deserts, as well as chemical contamination from toxic stress and the criminalization of mental illness. The United States has been found guilty on all five counts and that acts of genocide have been committed. Wow. So my next question is, now what? Who goes, does Joe go to jail? Like what, who? No, nothing happens. Yeah, nothing's going to happen. That's the sad part, but the, I just thought it was, 
it's not cool that we were found guilty of all those things. It's horrible, but it's good that it's like being seen. That right. Well, it's and not I, being seen, unfortunately. But right. it's good that like it's it is somewhere and it is out there. Exactly. So I just wanted to mention it because I think it's really important and should be talked about more. I've seen like one video about it and then I looked it up myself. So Wow. I haven't seen anything about it, so you the have only, enlightened me. The only big like news people that have been talking about it was MSN. <laughs> like the like the internet <laughs> broadcast right. or whatever the fuck it is. Yahoo mail Yahoo News or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's real. Wow. Ooh, fantastic. Go America. America. So upsetting. <laughs> no. <laughs> if our listeners know anything, it's they know the, how we feel about America. Don't trust your government. <laughs> Especially in America. <laughs> America. We also have an announcement. Do you want to make our announcement? We are... I'm going to post it number on. 35 in Kazakhstan. <laughs> oh, that wasn't the announcement, but that's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, but it needs mention. Okay, it does. So we thanks, received guys. an email. Yeah, that we were number 35 in the app in the in the Apple Podcasts in Kazakhstan. So thanks. Yeah. We will find a Kazakhstan case to thank you. Or or if you know of one, Send it. <laughs> yeah, send it. Share it with us because we are highly interested yes. in doing one. Um, the other announcement, I think. This is the episode, the, the PS We Have Orders episode. Oh, right. <laughs> On Thursday, we have a bonus episode coming out with our friends at PS We Have Orders. Yeah. And, um. It's a really interesting mystery, and they uh, enlighten us on like some of the nuances and the like. Uh, like whenever you're a, a military spouse or what do they call it? Mm-hmm. You have yeah, mill spouse. Yeah, so um, it's really good, and we have some like great expert input um, on that episode, and it's yeah, uh, it's an interesting case that I had never heard of. Me either. Had no idea. Well, let's get into it. I chose this this. case uh, because it's insane and it's a good one and because it's been 50 years now. This year is 50 years. It's been 84 years. (laughs) We're going back to the 1970s because for some reason that was 50 years ago, which in my mind it's still 30 years ago. 30, yeah. I know. The 70s is Watergate, Jonestown, Hurricane Agnes, Disco, Bell Bottoms, Sideburns, whatever. (laughs) Um, We are going to Galveston. So you were close. Mm -hmm. Galveston, Texas is a coastal town and port on Galveston Island on the northwest coast of the Gulf of Mexico. Galveston County had an estimate around 175,000 people in the early 1970s. That's all I got. I went it there also, when I was little, and I apparently spoke to two ghosts in the house we rented, so. I mean, that doesn't surprise me. Galveston is very haunted. There was, like, that big, in the 1900s, there was a huge hurricane that, like, completely devastated Galveston. Um, 
uh, but it was rebuilt and it's got some of the grossest beaches I've ever been to. <laughs> is it because the water is gross or like the people? The water is gross. The... <laughs> um, Not people, the... but you know what? Like people are dirty. Like they leave stuff yeah, in the sand. Yeah, like stuff. they'll That's leave stuff. The sand is like, I don't know. It's Pebbly. just, yeah. Yeah, I was really little when I went, so I have no memory. I remember it being foggy. Okay, yeah. That feels accurate. I I don't know if that's true. It's a cute town. It's a, it is a cute town, though. It's I mean, it sounds like it's like there's like surfing and like there's stuff to do there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So we're in the golden age of serial killers, and we're going to talk a little bit about Ed Bell. So for America, yeah, we think of Pacific Northwest as the hub during the golden age of serial killers, but that wasn't the only place, as Galveston has had a very big share of tragedies during this time. I got most of my information from a documentary called The Eleven, which is streaming on Amazon, yeah. but I also dug around for some other stuff. So you do know It was this good. One. I did. I do know this one. I watched it. Um, I watched The Eleven um when it came out and i think that that was probably like the most enlightening documentary yeah. that i've seen about it because yeah. like there's been others like oh who done it blah, blah 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 but they actually tied it a lot of things up yeah which i liked that's what i like about it also um the doc was run by two local investigators fred page who is an ex-homicide detective and lise olson who is an investigative reporter for the houston chronicle Fun fact, an episode of Unsolved Mysteries covered the case of Edward Harold Bell in 1992. Edward oh, Bell. Oh, I didn't know that. I know, I didn't either. Um, Edward Bell had a normal childhood. He did Boy Scouts. He went to Texas A&M University and played trombone there. He was a frequent diver and a traveling salesman. Salesman. <laughs> salesman. Salesman. Um, he had criminal charges present since 1969, and he was arrested seven times until 1978. These charges ranged from aggravated rape indec to indecent exposure to children. He claims that in a 14 to 15 year period, he probably flashed 10,000 girls. Jesus. Gross. <laughs> yeah. Um... Now, Larry Dickens, who was 26, was an ex-Marine and a youth counselor. On August 24th, 1978, in Pasadena, Texas, Larry was cutting the grass as his, at his mom and dad's house while his mother was in the kitchen and his three-year-old daughter was riding her tricycle around the lawn, I think. Um, yeah. A red pickup truck pulled up to Larry's house and Ed Bell, naked from the waist down, got out and was touching himself in the street walking toward a group of children. Larry's mother saw him and called the police. There was no 911 at the time, so she literally had to call, like, the department. Yeah, um, yeah. Larry ran out to prevent Bell from escaping and took the keys out of his pickup. Because of this, Bell shot Larry several times. Larry ran into the garage and collapsed into his mother's arms. His daughter's nanny brought her through the garage where she saw her daddy lying on the floor with his eyes open, but he was still alive. Yeah. Bell demanded the return of his keys. Larry gave in and handed them to Bell, and that's when he went back to his truck, grabbed a high-power rifle, and sh came back and shot him in the head while he was still in his mother's arms. Damn. Bell left, and Larry's mom called an ambulance. Larry got to his feet and struggled to the driveway before he collapsed. Bell came back and shot him a few more times. Larry's Jesus. I know. 
Larry's sister came home from school at this time and parked her car in front of Bell's truck so he couldn't escape. But he backed down the street and got away. By then, police arrived and there was a small chase. He tried to fire back at the officers after being cornered in a cul-de-sac, but his rifle jammed. So he was caught and brought back to the scene to be identified by Larry's family. Larry had passed at this point, which is super yeah. sad. Bell paid the $124,000 bond and was released 24 hours after his arrest. He never showed up to his hearing, and he remained free and unseen until September 1984. The only sighting was when he broke into a home in Bryant, believed to have broken into a home. In Bryant, Texas, he threatened a young mother with a knife and even stabbed her. But she fought back. She forced him out of her bathroom where he cornered her, grabbed a gun, and chased him out of her house. He got away. She wasn't seriously injured. So go mama. That's amazing. Yeah. This episode aired in 1992, and two tips were called into the show. He was arrested two months later in Panama City, Panama, on February 14th, 1993. He was convicted and sentenced to 70 years in prison for the murder of Larry. And that's just our introduction to today's mystery. That's not even this. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> not even <this. laughs> Also, fun fact. So in that episode of Unsolved Mysteries, Matthew McConaughey was Larry, and it was his first ever TV role. <laughs> oh, my God. I had no idea. How the fuck I did I miss that? I, because I think when what we're younger, season was we this? I have no idea. I didn't watch it. <laughs> oh, I thought you said it. Uh, oh, no, my I, God. 19, I know it came out in 1992, so I'm sure it'd be easy to find. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to look on Prime. Yeah. No, it's Peacock. Peacock. They're all on Peacock. I think they're on Prime too. No? Yeah, I think they're everywhere. Um It's also on Roku, so you can look anywhere if you have a Roku TV. So now we know Ed Bell a little bit. We're gonna talk about the eleven who went to heaven. So Colette. Colette Anise Wilson was thirteen years old when she went missing. She had eleven siblings, which is a lot. She shared a room with her older sister, so they were extremely close. She was a social butterfly. She was popular, beautiful, and sensitive with a big heart. She loved music, was very spiritual, and had a lot of friends. Her mother remembers her as a happy, carefree child. Her sister now works to help prisoners feel empathy for their victims, which is amazing. In the summer of 1971, she desperately wanted to go to music camp, 35 miles from her home, but the distance was a problem. Her mother wanted to go, wanted her to go to camp, but had 11 other children, so she could only drive her partway. She couldn't drive, you know, an hour away and an hour back. Yeah. The band director offered to pick her up at the corner of County Road 99 and Highway 6 because he was driving that way anyway I to get to that's camp. You do? Yeah. Oh. I don't. Well, I do because I County Road 99 is now a toll road that goes all the way around the city. There's now three gigantic loops that go around Houston. I know. I've been on one of them with their nine lanes and everyone has big trucks because it's Texas. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, He dropped her off there as well. So he would pick her up on this like junction and then drop her off there. On Thursday, yeah. June 17th, 1971, Colette was dropped off by her band director and was waiting for her mother to pick her up after camp. Her mother arrived, and there wasn't any Colette. There wasn't a band director, just a black car. She went back home and called her husband, who said it didn't sound right. 
There was a huge volunteer party looking for Colette. Her disappearance devastated her family. In November, so a few months later, um, her on her eldest sister's 15th birthday, Colette's body was found by the attic's reservoir. They used dental records to identify her body. Unfortunately for her father, he was also her dentist, so he had to, like, go to the scene. No. So sad. Um, her father couldn't handle it and ended up dying at the young age of 43. Some say it was from a broken heart. I'm sure. I mean, oh, I can't even Can you, imagine. Yeah. I would be like, is there any other dentist <laughs> that right? can do this? Ugh. But he knew her teeth. So he had to right. like the way the, the, one. the way the sister said it was like he had to go and hold the jaw in his hands. Like yeah. hard. Um, That's really sad. Another thing that was missing was Colette's clarinet. It has never been found. Wow. So that's numero uno. Maria and Debbie. (gasps) Okay, wait. There are big ones. There's a lot more information about them. Okay. The clarinet, I feel like I have, I've heard about this. Mm -hmm. The clarinet. Doesn't it come into play again? So no, okay, it's that's what been that's what like, that I was, like, thought. A big thing. Right. That's what I thought because I was like, oh, this. I think I because I rewatched the eleven. I watched it like yeah last year at some point, and then I rewatched it to do all this research because I was like, they have the most concise information and it, it's clues like and all theories and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So when I was watching it, and then they brought up the clarinet, which they talked about Colette like last. So I was like, I don't. I had to wait till like the last episode to get to her, but. I was like, I do remember the clarinet appeared later, and I think I confused it with the Phantom Killer because there's a trumpet. Yes. Yeah. Nope. You're and right. It, yep. So I, yeah. I did the same exact That's thing. That's what I confused it, it with. No one ever found it. I was it's like, never the clarinet's never found, but then like it comes. But back. like someone pawns it, it, and then they go to text it, yeah. like, and they trace it. And I was like, no, it's the that's the Phantom Killer in the yeah. Piece. So I my mind went exactly where your mind went. <laughs> Also in Texas. Also our second episode. So if you want to listen to it, go for it. So Maria and Debbie. Maria Johnson and Debbie Ackerman were last seen on November 15th, 1971, getting a ride near an ice cream shop on Galveston Island. Both girls were only 15 years old. Maria was very pretty, full of energy, was new to town, and was always seen as soft and lovely. She had a rough life since her parents split up and they moved homes a lot. But she fit in at school and was a fantastic water skier. She and Debbie were best friends. So much spit in my mouth. I need that, like, dentist thing that, like, sucks the... Yeah. That would be really nice to have because then you could also get, like, the corners of your computer and... (laughs) I thought you were going to say, like, way back at the back of your, like, buyer wisdom. (laughs) You're like, I could get the the corners, the deep corners of the couch. (laughs) Horrible. Gross. Um, Debbie was a big fan of surfing and surfed a lot. She had heterochromia, which is when you have one eye a different color than the other eye. She was born in Galveston, and she also made local news reports for water skiing. The night before their disappearance, they went to the movies, and the next day was a school holiday, so they planned on surfing the next day, like that day. But neither girl 
neither girl has been seen or heard from. Nope, I can't read. <sighs> but neither girl. Who wrote this? I know I did. You but did. It, it was, it, it was all you. There's S's in I mean, there. It's negative. You're the only one to blame. None here. of them. Neither of them were seen that day. That's all. <laughs> neither Neither of them were seen. I wrote, but neither girls hadn't been heard from that day. Oh. What? They were last seen by Cindy Thompson. Cindy was a neighbor of Maria's, and she worked at Baskin-Robbins. So she saw the girls all the time, because I think Baskin-Robbins was like a popular little hangout spot. She remembers the girls coming into the shop. Um, she asked what they were doing, and they said they were going to hitchhike to Houston. Maria had on red pants and a white top. She wasn't sure what Debbie was wearing. She watched them cross the parking lot. A few vehicles drove by, but a white van stopped. The van had a peace sign in the back window. She could see the driver was male and that he wasn't school-aged. He stuck his arm out the window. The girls spoke with him like they recognized him. They talked a little bit, got into the van, and they were gone. That was the last they were seen. The next day, November 17, 1971, a man was fishing on Turner Bridge when he saw a body, so he called the police. Maria's body was ID'd, and that's when they found Debbie while they were collecting evidence of Maria's death. They were both bound and partially nude in the water off of Turner's Bridge in Turner's Bayou. Oh. So they were only gone for two days. I don't. It's it's all very rural. It's near those highways, though. Yeah. Um. It's all like the same area. So that's we're at three now. Yeah. So this is number four, Kimberly. Kim Pitchford was 16, and she disappeared from Houston after leaving a driver's ed class. Kim's older sister, Candace, um, explained that they were super close growing up. They had a super happy childhood together. Kim was very kind. She loved cats and dogs. She was a sophomore in high school, and she was excited to get her license. Kim and Candace shared a bedroom. They made an entire wall with pictures from magazines until their dad said enough was enough of that mess, and I just thought that was cute, so I wanted to put it in there. Yeah. Kim was leaving driver's ed from Dobie High School at 5.30 p.m. on January 3rd, 1973. So this is two years after Maria and um, Debbie. It was a school night, and her mother was expecting her to call to, like, go get her, I think, was the plan. The arrangement was she would go to a payphone, call her mother, and then her mother claimed that she felt guilty because she thinks she might have been on the phone when Kim tried to call her. Some witnesses claimed Hitch... Kim hitched a ride with a Volkswagen, which was seen driving around that, like, area that day. Mm -hmm. Moments later, the car drove away, and it was the last she was seen alive. Put a pin in that. Just, we're going to have lots of pins. Candace's dad went out at 8 p.m. to drive around and look for Kim. They drove around for an hour looking on the sides of roads, in ditches, wherever they could think of. It was unlikely that Kim wouldn't call. She was found two days later on Friday, January 5th, 1973. Kim's coat was on a gate by a ditch in the middle of nowhere. The ditch typically had a little bit of water. Kim's body was found approximately 30 minutes away from where she was abducted in a place with a bridge, which was a rice canal. Um, She was partially in the water. She's unclothed from the waist down. Put a million pins in all of that. That whole thing. A million. Okay, one, two. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I only have three. I have to use them sparingly. (laughs) (laughs) So we're at four girls. We're going to talk about Belle again. So this is Belle part two, the letters. Okay. 
Fred Page, the retired police officer from Galveston, had a reputation for closing cases, and he got the cases of Debbie and Maria in 2005. While going through the files, he found a confession letter that Edward Harold Bell wrote in prison. It said, Dear Sir, I have figured out that I have been on a brainwash murder program most of my life. I was brainwashed into killing Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson in November 1971. I have also killed five other girls in Galveston County. This is a statement of facts. Yours truly, Edward Harold Bell. This letter was received by the Galveston DA around what? January 1998. Yeah, he's super gross. Um, the chief investigator went to interview him, but Bell went silent and wouldn't talk to them. That letter then was stored in a file cabinet and was never touched again. The DA's gut told him it was false, so he didn't dig any, for any further. Fred disagreed, yet Bell refused all interviews. So that's when Fred met up with Lise Olson, the investigative journalist, who became the first person Bell ever agreed to speak with. He immediately started talking about the program, which was government agents working on a secret operation called the program, which brainwashed him to commit violent acts. He blames it for his horrible actions. He also blames his father. She asked if he remembered Maria or Debbie, and he said, I can't discuss anything that might be held against me in court. Uh, there was one part where he said... He was like, we can talk about it when I'm back on the streets where I belong, sir. You don't belong there. Even if you didn't. No. You don't belong there. Um, nope. With all your flashing and other issues. Lee started writing to him, and he would write poems back. The first one was The Eleven Who Went to Heaven, and he sent a list of ten people. He sent her a second list in which he added one. Like, it literally said, correction, eleven. In his letters, he started sending details. He included details about how he killed Debbie and Maria. He also named Colette Wilson and Kimberly Pitchford, who he said was wearing a black fur coat. It literally said Gulfgate Blonde with a, quote, with a coat. <laughs> um, he mentioned two girls in Webster, July 1971. One blonde, one brunette. Mm -hmm. Rhonda Renee Johnson and Sharon Shaw are the only two girls from Webster that were murdered at that time. He mentioned two girls in Dickinson, Georgia Gear and Brooks Bracewell. I think same thing. They were the only ones that like fit. He didn't mention any others, but that's only nine girls, not 11. They chose to look into Gloria Gonzalez. Ed didn't mention her, but he did say GG from Houston and her bones were found near Colette's. So we're at 10. Fred and Lise decided to look into Brenda Jones and Suzanne Bowers as other possible victims, especially since Bell mentioned five girls from Galveston County. Put a pin in that. <laughs> Penned. All the pins. So, information we know. In this letter, Bell described murdering Maria and Debbie in gruesome detail. He described standing on Turner Bridge, having the girls stand in the water, partially naked and bound when he allegedly shot them. He described head-to-toe shots like he was standing on the bridge, so he was shooting at, like, a downward angle. Yeah. Um, he named them the month, the year, the bridge, the head-to-toe shots, and that they were bound. So that all matches up with how they were found. So the questions are, did he know them, and did he have a white fan? You ready? <laughs> Do you yeah. remember any of this? Is it, like, coming back to you? Yes, because I remember, I think I remember the white van, van was hard to find. Yeah, uh, not too hard. <laughs> oh. Um, Doug Prun owned a surf shop on the island that Maria and Debbie frequented. Doug remembered them hanging around their shop, but didn't know them well. 
He did, however, know Bell. He met him in 1970 when Doug was only 23. Bell would head to his shop and ask him about it. And Bell was trying to sell diving gear, but he had no way to sell it. So they became business partners. Bell only hung around the shop for an hour or two at the time. At a time. Doug didn't know him that well and didn't remember seeing them together. But one of his old employees was there a lot. His name was Jimmy. Jimmy Summerfield was an alligator and snake wrestler until he got bit by a rattler. And that's when he started working at the shop. And that's just a fun tidbit that doesn't really matter. <laughs> just Texas. I don't know. Um, <laughs> although that has serious like Florida energy. I Yeah. It sure he, does. <laughs> I mean, we have people alligator. down. We have people down in Venice holding giant boas and stuff. We just don't have alligators. We have sea lions instead, and they're much cuter. Oh, they are. <laughs> they're oh, they're so cute. So cute. I love them so much. <laughs> sea puppies. Okay, so Jimmy said he remembered Bell and was um. He remembered that Bell was always coming and going, that he was a go-getter, but had the vibe of like a con man and would capitalize on weak points, whatever that means. Jimmy recognized the girls together when they came into the shop. He mentioned Cindy and how she saw them le leaving and getting picked up by the van. He had admitted that Bell had a white Ford van with no windows on the sides because typical, and he believes that the girls would have known him from the shop. So, Fred went digging and found evidence from a February 4th, 1972 report where Bell was arrested for exposing himself to girls, and he had a white Ford van. Yeah. That arrest was only a few months after Debbie and Maria disappeared. So, yeah. we know who he mentioned for sure. We know who we're looking at as possible victims. We know he had a van, and we know he was a perverted, gross person. <laughs> and a murderer. Yeah. He did murder Larry. Moving on to Rhonda and Sharon. So these are like the potential victims that they mentioned. Um, Rhonda goes by Renee, so I'm going to call her Renee. Uh, Rhonda, Renee Johnson, and Sharon Shaw were from Webster. Renee was only 11 when her mother left home, um, so she grew up quickly to help keep the house. She escaped through the ocean and music, and she loved Janice Joplin and would regularly hitch rides to go surfing in Galveston. Renee became very close with a girl named Sharon. Sharon was a year younger and was super confident, had street smarts, and was a natural leader. She was crazy about surfing, and some believe she could be a pro surfer, and she often spoke about running away to Texas from Texas to surf here in California. Yeah. August 4th, 1971, the girls caught a ride with Glenda Willis, who was their friend, to go surfing in Galveston. Glenda had to leave, so she went home and left the girls at the beach. It was the last time the girls were seen alive. Their bodies were found at Taylor Lake, 35 miles north of Galveston, February 1972. Sharon's skull was found in the middle tunnel of the lake. They found they had like little tunnels that I think went under the road or, or a bridge or something. And it, she was in the middle one. Sharon's skull was found in the middle. I just said that they found 29 bones and a piece of black twine with two knots tied in it. Are we seeing the pattern? Yeah. Bodies of water. Bridges. Rope. Rope. Yeah. Renee's skull was found about a quarter mile down the lake. It was found by two teenagers in a boat who thought it was a volleyball floating. So they went and, like, grabbed it. Oh. Yeah. Oh. And you know that stuck with those kids their whole life. 
Yep. Yeah. I had to. Rhonda's brother, Chuck, or Renee's brother, Chuck, claimed she had no reason to run away from home. They had a very happy childhood. Belle claims to not know anything about Renee or Shannon. Shannon? Sharon. But they are linked with Marie and Debbie through the Galveston surf community. Doug's Dive Surf Shop uh, and Wick's Ski School were popular hangouts. There was also a local sailing instructor living across the bayou. His home was another popular hangout. You know who else lived on that property? Bell. <laughs> he lived in a trailer on the property. I think so. the back, right? I think so. I couldn't find information about when he lived in that, at that place. But I'm sure he yeah. just lived like on the, in the lot, the- not in the guy's house or anything. Yeah. Um, so he's now positively connected to the murders of Maria Johnson, Debbie Ackerman, Rhonda Renee Johnson, and Sharon Shaw. Yeah. The mess that was Michael Self. So pressure was on for the police to catch the killer of these four young surfers, and then they arrested Michael Self in May 1972. Michael Lloyd Self was found guilty of murdering Sharon Shaw. So does that make him responsible for all of the murders? In 71, city councilman Roy Johnson, who is Renee's grandfather, had originally hired J.C. Norman as the chief of police. And J.C. Norman put Lieutenant David Coburn in charge of Renee and Sharon's murder investigation. They only had a seven-man police force. They had never worked a murder. But now there's tremendous pressure on them. They put all of their resources into the case and never even came up with the lead. We all know where this is going because that's always great on a small town police department. Um, Roy Johnson wanted action and put a lot of pressure on Webster PD. In April of 72, uh, Chief Norman was fired and Lieutenant Colborn, Colburn resigned. He hired... So I don't really know who hired these two. There's another councilman that they mentioned, so I don't know if it was Roy Johnson or this other guy. Um, Yeah. They hired Don Morris as chief who hired and put Tommy Deal in charge of the investigation. Nine days after being on the case, he had a suspect. It was Michael Lloyd Self. Self was friends with J.C. Norman. Self worked in an all-night garage, drove a wrecker, and was noted as mentally slow. Which, in my mind, I immediately think he's not slow. He's probably just on the spectrum. Or this is the 70s. He could have just had dyslexia and was never helped because yeah. he didn't do that back then. Um, he was also a fo- – he worked at the – he was a volunteer firefighter, which the fire department shared the same building as the police department, so they – He had regular contact or was seen often by the police. Before Morris was hired as chief, he worked as a security guard at an apartment complex and had accused Self of looking up girls' skirts when they walked up the stairs. Self had been arrested twice before on peeping Tom complaints, and instead of being given time, he received psychiatric treatment. He also talked about Self in regards to gasoline thefts from city fire trucks and threatened to arrest him. So this is before he was even police chief. In early June, Morris questioned Self about marijuana possession. 
At about 5 p.m. on Friday, June 9th, Self was questioned about the murders at his place of work. When he left work around 7 a.m., he agreed to go to the police department for further questioning, and he signed a written confession. It was then that he was taken to Houston, where he received his Miranda rights and was given an attorney. He asked to take a polygraph to prove his innocence, but his attorney advised against it. Self claimed they wrote the confession and made him sign it. Morris wanted him arrested because he allegedly called him names. So Self allegedly called him names in a recorded conversation with Chief Norman. Um, He also claimed that he asked for a lawyer and Morris said, you had your chance last week. And he said he didn't murder the girls. Like he maintained his innocence. But Morris had him handcuffed to a chair, took his nightstick and rammed it into his abdomen. He also hit him three or four times over the back and shoulders. Officers Morgan and Mitchell were in the room. Supposedly Morris had officer. Why do they all have M names? Supposedly Chief Morris had Officer Morgan's nightstick. They so were it wasn't all his. Huh? Because they were all white. Oh, yeah, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what does that have to do? None of these people are not white. So. <laughs> um. Self later testified it was just him and Morris in the room when he took five rounds out of his gun, aimed it at Self's head, and played Russian roulette with him and said, I'll blow your brains out unless you sign it, and told him he'd kill him and say that he ran and he had no choice. This is what Self claims. This is what Self claims. Uh, Assistant Chief Deal wasn't present during the interrogation, but had told Self he'd get him psychiatric help if he signed the confession. Bribery? Does that stand for bribery? (sighs) Uh, What is it called, though? It's not bribery. It's like... Coercion. uh, Yeah, you force a, a forced confession. Yeah. So, one man, this is the other councilman, so I don't know if he hired them or or what happened. I believe he worked with or was part of hiring Morris as chief. Um, Ronnie Shapiro. He was also a Harris County Sheriff's deputy. Yeah. Do you know his name? Why did you yeah. make that face? Oh, okay. Ron Shapiro. Yeah. What do you know? What do you do? <laughs> you got uh, something fun. I don't know a whole lot. I know that name, though. Oh. It's very, like, significant. I feel like. I don't really know. I, I know the name, though. Like, it's very familiar to me. Well, if something rings a bell, please tell. Um, that rhymed. So, Ronnie Shapiro admitted that they took Self to the hospital right after his confession. He was stripped down and had photos taken. There were no marks on him, so he wasn't beaten. But doing that to someone who just gave a confession was, like, not a thing. Yeah. Um, however, in a later document, he was reported, uh, self was reported as having marks on his stomach. And even though he admitted the bruises couldn't be seen in the photographs, he also said he did not bruise easily. He immediately testified after that Mitchell and Morgan were present. So this is self self immediately testified after that Mitchell and Morgan were present during the beating self admitted. He didn't know which one was correct because before he reported they were alone. So now he has, like, mixed stories. Yeah. Mitchell testified way later in the 90s that he was present during portions of the June 9th interrogation. He said Self was relaxed and more concerned with punishment and just kept repeating his innocence. He left Self and Morris alone and came back 30 to 45 minutes later. He remembered Morris had Officer Morgan's nightstick. Self was upset and nervous. 
Morris was hitting his own hand with a stick threateningly and was swearing and told Self he couldn't leave until he confessed. He didn't see the Russian roulette actions, but believed it may have happened. And because Morris had used that technique on another prisoner before. Oh. Shapiro claimed Mitchell never mentioned this before. There was another guy that mentioned, I think it was Lieutenant Coburn who had resigned, that also mentioned the Russian roulette thing. And he said that, like, Morris had done that to another prisoner, but it was a huge secret. So Self couldn't have known that he did that. So to make that up is, like, super specific. Yeah. Detective Hank Bamer interviewed Self. I... I was like listening to the documentary, but I actually found the transcript, not transcript, but like the the paperwork from his appeals case in the 90s um, where he uh-huh. tried to appeal it and say that it was under coercion. So it was a little off, but I followed that more because it's a literal court document. <laughs> I trust that more than the other ones, than the documentary. So they said in the documentary it was a few days after his confession, um, but in the document it said, like, that day. This is when all this happened. Like, the hospital, the this guy, them driving around to locations, all that stuff. Um, so, Detective Hank Bamer interviewed Self a few days after the confession to test the validity of the charges and the confession. Sorry, the same day. It was the same day. He said that his demeanor was, I did it and just want to get this over with. They left the jail and went to some locations. Um Self was directing. Detective Bamer got him a cheeseburger. Self took them on a tour of the locations in his confession. Today, Detective Bamer claims to be 85% convinced he was guilty due to the fact that there was no physical evidence. That's not beyond a reasonable doubt, first of all. No. But that's today. I'm sure he didn't feel that way back then. Or maybe he did. There wasn't enough physical evidence to convict Self for Renee's murder, so he was tried only for Sharon's. He maintained his innocence the entire time. He was found guilty on May 15, 1973. They couldn't connect him to any of the other murders. Shapiro, who worked with and was friends with Morris and Deal, believed they were stand-up guys. However, they were both committing bank robberies at the same time time deal and morris were arrested for these robberies in 1976 fred the guy in the documentary tracked down deal who was serving a life sentence in minnesota for bank robbery he admitted that self gave a second confession three days after his first one and it differed from the first one on june 9th so here's some of the like discrepancies differences yeah june 9th he claimed that the bodies were hidden in a culvert on june 12th he said they were hidden in the bayou Both were descriptive of the same location that their bodies were found. June 12th, he claimed to have discarded the girl's clothing along the side of Red Bluff Road. However, so this is his second confession. This is inconsistent where their clothing, mm, writing, this is inconsistent with where their clothing that they were last seen wearing was found. It was found in a ditch where the bodies were hidden. No clothing was found off of Red Bluff Road. The officers knew this was not where the clothing was found. Why would they feed him the wrong information in a forced confession? It is noted it's possible he meant Old Choate Road, which intersects with Red Bluff Road. In the June 9th confession, 
self-claimed that he met Renee at a theater and that they then went to Sharon's house. In the June 12th confession, he claimed he picked up Renee along the side of the road and then Sharon at a yacht club, which also indicates that the girls split up at some point and then reunited. In an yeah. oral statement on June 23rd, he picked up he said he picked up Renee on the road near a steakhouse, which was nearby the theater. I don't know why that matters. The record has no info regarding if the girls returned from their day trip from Galveston or if they split up before they were reunited that day. So, this second confession made on June 12th was permitted as evidence in the 1973 trial, but the first one made it the first one made on June 9th was not. The judge who presided over self's appeal claims that his confession was only corroborated in a small town where everyone knew where those girls' bodies were found. So him showing them the location of where they found their remains was commonly known information. He recommended that he was released. This is in the documentary from, like, I think the appeals case. I'm not sure which, what. Yeah, this is the judge that presided over his appeal claim. So this is in the 90s. However, with the evidence presented by Morris Deal Shapiro and Shapiro having had asked Self if he was hurt and he said no, Deal also admitted to reading Self as a Miranda rights twice and that he denied needing a lawyer. The ER doctor claimed he had no marks or evidence of bruising on him. His appeal was concluded that he was given Miranda rights and that he wasn't mistreated or threatened in any way but that his June 12 confession violated his Sixth Amendment right to counsel and that he did not validly waive that right before that interrogation. The final judgment was that the district court is reversed and the case is remanded for the entry on of an order of dismissal. So that means it went back down to lower courts for reconsideration due to the district court's new findings. So they agreed that the second confession uh, uh, violated his Sixth Amendment rights to counsel and um, that it has to be sent back down to go through more appeals or whatever i don't know what happened after that that's all (laughs) (laughs) that's all (laughs) so we don't know what his story is at all yeah that led to no no answers whatsoever no we're moving on to some more potential victims we're almost there Okay. okay brenda Um, Brenda Jones disappeared on July 11th, 1971. Brenda was 14 years old. She was last seen getting off of a bus near her home after visiting her grandmother at the hospital. Brenda was the youngest of five and was really close with her sister, Phyllis, who was the second youngest. Um, She loved music and watching Soul Train. She was extremely faithful, loved kids, and taught Sunday school. She had a pair of Roman sandals, which her mother apparently hated, um, but she wore them all the time. The bus driver let her off on 33rd Street and told her to go straight home because it was starting to get dark. Brenda said, okay, I'm just going to run and get my sister a Coke. But she wasn't seen again. And I know her sister, like, feels really bad about that. A 19-year-old student saw a torso floating out to sea when he was fishing on a bridge. They recovered the torso and brought it in. It was Brenda. Her feet and hands were tied with plastic. The plastic used to bind her came off of her Roman sandal shoes. She was unclothed from the waist down, gagged with her own underwear, strangled, and she was still warm when they found her body. This was only a few hours after she was last seen. She was only a few miles from where she was dumped in the canal. 
She is the only African-American girl being investigated in these 11 girls. So where does Ed Bell fit into this mix? We'll put a fucking pin in it. Like a big pin. <laughs> like I'm running out of room. Um, they found an old evidence box in the documentary with the ligatures found on Brenda Jones. They found DNA of a male profile on them, but it wasn't enough to link it to anyone. When they returned with this information to Phyllis, she was pleased and shocked because the day they told her they exhausted their leads with the straps, it was November 18th, which was Brenda's birthday, which I thought was really, they were like, I had no idea. Yeah. Um, so moving on to Gloria. Gloria Gonzalez was a 19-year-old bookkeeper who was murdered on October 28, 1971 in Houston, Texas. She was last seen on Jacqueline Street in Houston. The family refused to speak to the documentary, so I only found a little bit of information on her. Gloria's severed remains were found on November 23, 1971 in Attic's Reservoir. Sound familiar? That's where yeah. Colette's body was found, which Bell admitted to mm -hmm. her murder in his letter. Although severed is completely different from how all the other girls were found. So I think that's interesting. They don't talk about it in the doc, but it's a different. Muy interesante. Yeah, it's like a different thing. Um, yeah. Allison. Allison Craven, who was 12, is not mentioned in the documentary. But I found her and thought she matched. Um, she disappeared on November 9th, 1971. Her mother reported her misser, missing after finding that Allison had disappeared from their apartment near I-45. They found partial remains early on, and then they found the rest of her on February 25th, 1972, in a field in Pearl Land, 10 miles from her Pearland. home. Pearland. Pear, whatever. Yep. That's okay. I, <laughs> Pearl that's and? Okay. It's not Pearl and? <laughs> Pearl and. That's how I read it. Oh, that's bad. Okay. Um, <laughs> no, you're fine. Ugh, it was 10 miles from her home. She is thought to have been murdered by a different killer. But her case is super similar. And the idea that her body was severed matches up with Gloria's. Yes. Which I think is interesting. Again, yes. not talked about in the documentary. I don't know why they think it's a different killer or what that, why, like who it might be. I have no idea, but I wanted to add her in here. Um, Georgia and Brooks. Well, I don't know what number we're on anymore. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Forty. 10. We're at 10 and 12. 11. Okay. Bell claimed to have killed two girls in 1975, a blonde and a brunette in Dickinson. Georgia Gear, who was 14, and Brooks Bracewell, who was 12, disappeared from Dickinson. There's only one issue. They were both murdered in 1974. Dickinson is a little town close to Galveston. These cases got almost no attention because they didn't find their bodies until April 3rd, 1981. They were believed to be runaways. They were last seen at 7.20 a.m. September 6th, 1974. They skipped school and didn't return home. That's it. That was the investigation. They didn't do any interviews, not with siblings, classmates, parents, like no one. Fred and Lise found Brooks' stepbrother. 
Brooks was, he explained that Brooks was skinny, silly, and was a little bit of a tomboy. She was a beautiful girl. She was playful, and they would often run away into the woods to hunt birds for the day. They would swim in the bayou, ride their bikes, like typical kid stuff. Georgia lived at the end of the street. Her brother describes her as tall and slender, and she was quite beautiful and very close. They were very close. Um, she had a sense of adventure. She loved music, her friends, boys, and she was a happy person. Brooks' brother, like Brooks Brothers? Yeah, I was Brooks just thinking that. Sis' brother <laughs> um, said they were waiting for the school bus, but she said she and Georgia were going to catch a ride. The girls ended up in a motel a mile from their home. No one mentioned where the girls were, but a 40-year-old police report by Vicki Reinigal was unburied by Lise and Fred. Vicki was 14 and 74. She and her friend were stalked and attacked a few months before Georgia and Brooks disappeared. It was daytime. A man knocked on the door and the guy said, there's a guy across the street that caught a fish and he wants to show you. The girls, being young and not aware, um, went over there and there was, they looked over the bridge, but no one was down there. They turned back around and the guy was in the bushes with his pants down. They screamed and ran past him into the barbecue house where Vicky's mother was. The license plate number was seen by witnesses. The number belonged to Edward Harold. Um, yeah. Typical. Sherry, Brooke's sister, claimed they dropped their stuff off in the woods because they walked out with their books like they were going to school, and then they ditched their books and their lunch and went on a walk. The girls didn't have any money on them. Brooks only had 28 cents in her pocket. She, um, Sherry saw them after school at the Rancho, the motel that was a mile from their home, which was a regular hangout. It was only, uh, I already said that. Sherry was playing pool with her friends and the girls sh showed up and they all just hung out together. The only other people she remembered being there was Ace, the manager, who was older, but he worked behind the bar and was friends with all the kids. She remembered two or three men sitting at the bar. And then at the end, Sherry decided to leave with the three boys she came with. The girls asked if they could get a ride, and Sherry said, no, the car was full. You found your way here. Find your way back. Which she must be so devastated by that um, because she never saw them again. One of her friends that was in the car with her remembered seeing the girls and seeing Georgia stick her thumb out to catch a ride, but they rounded the corner and disappeared from view. So what did the bartender know? He speaks in the doc but doesn't want to be seen. Honestly, they named everyone in the documentary, and I was like, what if these people don't want to be, like, named? I don't know. It just made me feel weird. So I didn't name a lot of people that they named. Um, yeah. He has no recollection of Ed Bell, but he did remember the girls there that day. He said they were there all day until school let out. Brooks' dad came by with the police, thinking that he was hiding them. Brooks' dad hit him, and the police let him interrogate Ace. But they never questioned him again. So the police didn't question him. Brooks' dad did and assaulted him, literally. Um, the girls' bodies were found seven years later in 1981 in an oil seven patch. Seven years. Yeah. It's the longest. They had no answers for seven years. I mean, I hate that. I mean, we are doing unsolved mysteries. I know. So they're all like that. <laughs> yeah, it sucks. It sucks. I can't imagine. I don't think anyone, unless you've been through it, there's no way you can, like, fathom what that feels like or what you would do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
They were found in an oil patch 15 miles away. Their bones were scattered by wildlife and time, and there was mud, so they had to sieve the, through the mud. They found a lot of teeth. 33 days later, they had enough remains to identify Brooks and Georgia. So, connecting Bell to Brooks and Georgia, where was Bell when they were abducted? Put another pin. <laughs> this is our last girl, and then we're going to like break down. <laughs> I, yeah, I think so. Um, we're going to break down like Bell, uh, like where he was, when, and whatever. So, Susie, this is now we're on girl like 12 because I have possible, and they didn't talk about one of them, and they already had. So actually, I'm on girl 13. So Suzanne Bowers, her father remembered her for being a tough girl. She was spunky and a tomboy. She loved water sports. She was happy and carefree. Her mother died when she was young, and her grandparents helped out by taking her and her siblings on the weekends, and they would take them to church on Sundays. Susie disappeared on Saturday, May 21st, 1977. She was 12 years old, 5 feet tall, and 90 pounds. She was wearing a Sunrise Surf t-shirt. Susie was walking home from her grandparents' house, but she never made it. She had a typical route that she walked to get back to her dad's. She typically walked along the seawall. By 2 p.m., no one had heard from her or seen her, and by the time it was dark, they called the police. She was not the type to run away. There was a large volunteer search party organized. Two years later, some motorcyclists found skeletal remains in Altaloma, which was a small town with a population of 1,500 at the time. Her body was found in a remote area by a canal, but her remains were behind a cattle pen. Oh, I lied. All the pins. I wrote all the pins. <laughs> Just because, like, they're all kind of the same. It's all a body of water. It's all rural. It's all, yeah. So. Wow. I mean, it's all in the same area-ish. Yeah. No, it is. It is, for so, the most part. Yeah. Like, there's just a couple that are a little too, like, further north. Yeah. Because one was in Houston. Gloria. Yeah. Yep. So. Which, like, I'd be interested to see. I have a map. You want to see it? No. I mean, yeah. Like, <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I just jumped. I jumped on what you were saying. I'm sorry. Um, like, I would be interested to see what his, like, agenda was. Like, what his uh, calendar was. Like, if he was needed to go to Houston for some reason that day, and he, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. away from well, the Galveston area. I can help you a little bit. Because we're in Bell Part 3, Timeline and Locations. In 1969, Ed Bell was sent to Jenny Seely Hospital in Galveston on a court order for psychiatric treatment for exposing himself to girls in West Texas. Bell claimed that he was at Jenny Seely for about 10 months and told Lise that he was dating teenagers while there in the hospital, including his future wife. I think he had three wives. Not at once. Oh, my God. <laughs> Magic. You want all the scandals? What's that? That. <laughs> he was Mormon. Um, on June 17th, 1971, Colette disappeared from Highway 6 and County Road 99. Her clarinet is still missing. Now, Jenny Seely Hospital is the same hospital that Brenda Jones' grandmother was in when she visited her on July 11th, 1971. 
you see the connection? Same hospital. Mm-hmm. He wasn't there, but anyway. Um, Renee and Sharon were abducted on August 4th, 1971. So these all happened like one after the other. So he was sent to psychiatric care in 1969 probably stayed till 1970 and then was doing whatever the fuck that year and then in june colette disappeared and then in july brenda disappeared and then in august renee and sharon disappeared debbie and maria were abducted on november 15th 1971 all four of those girls oh all five of them all six of them nope five of them disappeared from galveston was Colette in Galveston? Highway six and County Road ninety nine? Is that Galveston? No, it's north yeah. of it. No, it's a, like it's the like League City area that I told you about. Yeah. There's also another intersection a little further north. It's at I forty five. I know that's another big highway that goes that way. Which is it's kinda closer to um in Houston. Yeah. Like so there's a couple of different like places that it intersects. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so Bell lived very near to Galveston. He commuted to downtown Houston to his office where he sold real estate. So he was constantly driving I-45, which is where Colette's body, someone's body. Oh, Allison's. Allison's body was found off of I-45. Um. A lot of this is all around I-45, too. Yeah. In 1972, he moved to New Orleans, where he was arrested for indecent behavior with a child. In 1973, he returned um, to Texas and rented a house in Alta Loma, which is where Susie was found. Yep, Susie. He stayed there until 1974. Then the evidence of where he lived is... Not really in official records. Like, it was harder to find. Lee's found evidence that Edward Harold Bell in Galveston bought a property in Beatty Subdivision in Galveston. It is immediately south of Dickinson Bayou, which is immediately south of Dickinson. It is minutes away from the Rancho Hotel. However, the deed is from 77, and the girls disappeared in 74. Jimmy Summerfield remembered Bell and his wife, um, who was younger and friendly, They were living in a train caboose. It was on the mainland, and he remembers it being close to League City on the east side off of I-45. You could see the caboose off the road. Um, Doug had pointed it out to Jimmy once when they were doing, like, a fiberglass job. Doug remembered it really well. It was built exactly like a train, but he didn't know if it was real or not. Bell had a fenced-in grassy field with a red caboose in the middle. They had raccoons, guinea pigs on the bed, turtles in the sink, fish in the bathtub. I think they had snakes. Like, it was just like a menagerie on the inside of this caboose, and it was, like, dirty. If you had raccoons in your house, I'm not saying that because I love raccoons, and if I could ever rescue one and own it, I would because they eat with their hands. But (laughs) they guinea pigs – on your bed, they're pooping on your bed. Like, I can't do. I, I mean, I could probably do um, a raccoon. I like if it was trained and everything. Yeah. I would have a raccoon friend. I could do a monkey. I love monkeys. Um, so disastrous. <laughs> I could never do a possum. I think they're fucking disgusting. No, um, they're so good though. They are the only. They don't get Lyme disease and they eat ticks. 
I, okay, but like a domesticated one is different than like a wild it's one. It's true. It's true. Anyway, back to. I don't know where I am. <laughs> uh, oh, we were, I was talking about all the weird menagerie of animals he had in his caboose. That sounded gross. Train caboose. <laughs> Literal caboose. <laughs> his derriere <laughs> uh, it's a literal train caboose or a trailer made to look like a train caboose no one knows so <clears throat> Belle was living in the area south of Dickinson when Georgia and Brooks disappeared from Dickinson kids used to party down by the lake at night the police were called down because of a verbal disagreement between the kids and an adult that adult was Ed Bell. He didn't belong there with the kids, and he claimed he lived in a caboose back in the trees by the lake. The police found that suspicious, and they went to check it out, but Ed wouldn't let them in, and they didn't have enough probable cause. Um, but he did say, my name is Edward Bell. So the police officer told the kids to maybe not party there anymore um, just because of the vibe that Bell gave. Um, Rancho Motel was about three miles from the lot where Bell kept the caboose. It was six miles from where he was arrested for exposing himself to Vicki Reinigal and her friend. This spot was only two miles from where Debbie and Maria were killed. Let's keep going. Records show that Bell worked at a VW dealership in 1974. He was arrested that year for flashing two girls in Baycliff, and the license plate was traced back to a VW dealership in Texas City. The owner claimed that Bell was an employee at the time. That's the connection with Kimberly, who was picked up by a Volkswagen. Right. Beetle. I think it was a Beetle. Yeah. Um, also Jeffrey Dahmer star. And Ted Bundy's. Maybe I'm thinking of Ted Bundy. You know what? I want to pull back did, my Jeffrey Did Jeffrey Dahmer have a car? I feel like he didn't. Did he have I, a job? I know he ate people. I read it. I read a thing recently that he that it was on like a murder group thing on Facebook and they were like, I had to ask Siri if Jeffrey Dahmer like used seasoning. And then, of course, everyone responded, well, you can't just not tell us because now we have to look it up. And then they said it was salt, pepper and a one steak sauce. And now I know that and now you know it. So you're welcome. Love it. Um, Bell was born at Gulf Camp Road in 1939. It was less than 12 miles from the site where Kimberly's body was found. Her body was found 22 miles from Alta Loma, where Bell lived in the caboose in 1973. One old neighbor of Bell's was friends with his wife when they lived in Alta Loma. On November 21st, 1974, a woman was in Jenny Seeley Hospital for treatment for depression. She claimed that Bella accosted her at gunpoint, abducted her, and raped her. If she's telling the truth or remembering correctly, she may be the only survivor of one of Bell's violent attacks. So the idea of him going back to that hospital is not, like, a weird idea, because he did yeah. go back. Um. She claims that he admitted to kidnapping and raping women once or twice a week. She looked young for her age. Um, she got in the elevator with a man who looked about 30-ish, and she asked how to get to the Holiday Inn. He said, well, we'll just walk out together with me, and I'll show you. 
Mm-mm. Next thing, mm-hmm. it's the 70s. They didn't know any better. Mm. Next thing she knew, she had a silver handgun to her. Um, he held a silver handgun to her and said, don't look, don't scream, and I won't hurt you. He put her in his truck, tied her hands, gagged her, and put her face down. He took her to a construction site where he ungagged her. He didn't take off all of her clothes, just the necessary ones, uh. and he raped her. She told her friend, and the friend told the hospital staff. Staff. Four days later, Bell was arrested, but there was insufficient evidence to prosecute in the rape of this woman. Bell claimed she was his girlfriend. He also claimed in the documentary that it never happened and she was hallucinating and delusional. He then also claimed that he had never been arrested, as he's sitting in prison for murder. So he's cuckoo. Yeah. Maybe. In 1978, after the murder of Larry Dickens, Jenny Seely Hospital released a psychiatric assessment of Bell from his time there, stating that he always sought treatment in lieu of jail time, and that Bell stated that this treatment was usually successful and his difficulties with exhibitionism would not reappear for some period of time, but they did always come back for reasons that Bell just simply couldn't understand. So, this documentary discussed Bell's psychiatric health with a professional for assessment, and he claimed that people typically give false confessions for notoriety, which Bell avoided, major mental illness, which produces hallucinations and delusions, which he never mentioned, and then they asked him when, about how Bell discussed the program, and the psychiatrist was talking about patterns. He claimed there, are many, there may be mental disorders, they may have, like, he may have some psychotic symptoms, but not that many. And he also noted that he liked talking about the girls and rape and blames his hormones for what made him go further than flashing. Because it, like, turned him on. Yeah. Um, he even stated, I killed the wrong people at one point. So did you, you're saying you didn't kill anybody and then you're saying you killed the wrong people and then... Maybe just don't kill people. How about that? Yeah. Or flash them or be gross. <laughs> In 1977, when Susie was murdered, Bell was ID'd in four different indecent exposure incidents with girls under the age of 14. In 1979, the body of Suzanne Bauer was found 2.3 miles from where Ed Bell's old caboose was parked in 1973. We're almost done. The Lost Years in Panama. So after he was arrested, remember he posted bail that same day. And fucked off and disappeared for 14 years. Jesus. According to Bell, he got a tourist card for San Jose, Costa Rica. He met his third wife there and lived there for three years before going to Panama. He did not want the documentary crew to go to Panama. He went um, by Elmer Cecil Boyd while he was there. Everyone knew him as Wally. He lived in a rented house in Chepo and then later in a boat in Pedro Miguel Yacht Club in Panama City. That was with his then 18-year-old girlfriend, which is where he was arrested. The girlfriend was really hard to track down. She was still living in Chepo with her daughter. She met Wally when she was 16 and a young mother. They dated for a long time before moving in together. She claimed he helped her a lot. She was left alone on the boat all day in shock after his arrest and was never told any information or help through her trauma in any way. She didn't know why he was arrested until Lisa and Fred went to Panama and told her. So she's just been living with this, like, this man was super 
helpful to me and super kind. And like she claimed that he was her first love and then he was arrested and she was never told anything ever. Um, she asked him, she sent back like a request with them. She asked him to confess. Um, so they brought that message back to him, but he refused to see them until they brought up that the message was from her. And he agreed to talk to Lise one-on-one and said, no cameras. But then in the interview, he says, no, I never refused the cameras, even though it was literally in writing that he said no cameras. He denied it. He also denied killing Larry. During his time in Panama, there were two women who disappeared. One was a nurse. The other was a nursing student. One left her house to get on the bus to go to school, and on the journey to her house, she disappeared. The second case, the woman went missing near Chepo. The nurse went missing from the canal zone area near Bell's Yacht Club. Bell wasn't linked to any of the disappearances in Panama. A lot of police records disappeared in 1989 due to U.S. interventions because we like to fuck shit up. Um, He hid out there during the ruling of a dictator and drug trafficker, Manuel Noriega. So America stopped him and something happened to all the police files. Why? That should be something you save. Um, two old members of Pedro Miguel Yacht Club were interviewed. They remembered him as Wally and said he came and went and was um, often out looking for gold. He wasn't social and wasn't part of the community. The man that they interviewed was Dockmaster, and while he was mining, like Bell was out mining, he moved his boat because there was a storm coming in and like tied it safely to an inner dock or whatever. When Wally came back, he was super pissed and said, don't ever do that again. Some other neighbors had similar experiences. They didn't know about the girlfriend until he was arrested. February 18, 1993, Bell was brought back to Texas to serve a life sentence for Larry Dickens' murder. Wow. And only Larry. So, theories and aftermath. Was Michael Lloyd Self guilty? <laughs> oh. He's the one with the, the false. Roulette. Yep. I don't know. I don't know either. <laughs> I don't have a strong opinion. Yeah. I feel like it's hard because it's like he. Who's telling the truth? Right. I think police are super corrupt. And if any of that's true, they're all going to work together to keep it covered up. Right. And. If it's not true, then that also sucks. I don't know. I also think it's strange because I don't have any knowledge of any connection to them or anything like that. They just lived in the same area. Yeah. I don't know. Was Bell insane or playing the system with his, in lieu of being arrested? Yeah, thousand percent. And then denying and not denying. Like he gave mixed things constantly yeah yeah um he knew what he was doing the whole time yeah that's my opinion um he even claimed that the 11 who went to heaven was a bullshit poem and that he made most of it up but the question is did he ever say anything that only the killer would know so in the original confession he spoke most about maria and debbie he had the month the year um he said he had a 357 magnum pistol and a 38 caliber bullet was found on the scene, but that only means they know the bullet size and not the type of gun. Um, so out of, like, they examined the 
confession letter and he made 11 points that were accurate but the authorities back then didn't withhold much information from the newspapers so it was all kind of public information that he said and there wasn't a single but there wasn't a single article that had all of those details in one paper so he would have had to have read all of the possible articles and remembered them for 27 years between the murders and when he confessed it is noted his confession is sparse. Um, he starts his stories at the end, not how he met them or what he did to them, Also, which is what would be reported in the paper, would be the end of their story. Um, also, why would he admit and then stop talking about it? But he says, I'll talk about it if you give me a lawyer. Um, there's no reason for Ed to write the letter. What could he gain? Are they just a bid to get back into court to talk about his brainwashing theory? He claims he doesn't know why he wrote the letter. Thoughts? He's lying. He knows why he wrote the letter. He knows. He knows. He's. I feel like he's in complete control. Yeah, and he—that's what he—and he knows it too because he knows that like there's not really anything out there that directly points everything to him, like that they can like catch him for. So I think that he admitted it. Before he realized everything that was out there. And now he's like, nah, I didn't write that letter. I don't know why I did that. You know, because he knows what's out there. He knows that, like. Yeah. He didn't get notoriety for it or anything. Like, it wasn't, like, published in the newspapers, I don't think. Right. It was all. I don't know. Well, it wasn't because he sent it. They went to question him. He refused. And then it just rotted in a drawer. So. Yeah. In their last interview. Lise was brave and got him talking about the disgusting, perverted things he'd done in hopes that he'd let something slip. He admitted to picking up two hitchhiking girls when he raped them. He claimed Debbie and Maria were tired of high school boys. Uh, The two hitchhiking girls are different. Different stories. He also claimed that Debbie and Maria were tired of high school boys. He spoke really gross, though. Like, it's really upsetting, him talking about all this. Um, Not surprised. He claimed they came, he said that they came running and jumped into his van in front of the Baskin-Robbins store and that it was a school holiday. So the Baskin-Robbins was full of kids since there wasn't any school. The older of the two said they knew him from Doug's surf shop. He claims he let them out by the Martini Theater in Galveston and that he went to work. Cindy Thompson corroborated that it was a school holiday. She also claimed that two Texas City detectives visited her between her initial interview with this documentary and the second one. And she asked how she knew, they asked how she knew the girls. The major case detective at Galveston PD worked with Fred before he retired and helped him find the DNA on the ligatures found on Brenda Jones. Um, They asked her what lab they had used, the Texas City police. So these new detectives are like on this case. Um, Texas City and Galveston police departments have always been rivals, which, why? Yeah. That shouldn't be a thing. Um. No. The two detectives also got a DNA sample from Bell. They reopened the case in 2016 and were considering Bell as a suspect in Maria and Debbie's murders. Everything we have looked at is circumstantial. Bell was up for parole in 2017. Um, do you have any last thoughts? Do you have any theory, any anything before I close this out? Uh, no. No. <laughs> you feeling good? You good? 
I'm good. <sighs> Bell was up for parole in 2017, the month that this documentary, The Eleven, came out. And he was, um, no, I'm sorry. The month that this documentary came out, he was denied parole for the murder of Larry Dickens. That year, he also claimed that he was suicidal and was hoping for the death sentence, which might be the reason he wrote those letters. Edward Harold Bell died in prison in 2019 at the age of 82. From the early 1970s, 30 bodies of murder victims, mostly women and girls, were found in the Texas killing fields. Most of the girls were 12 to 25 years old, and some had similar looks and features. Very few of these murders have been solved. If you or someone in your family has any information or if you'd like to share your own theories, please feel free to email us at mrreticle at gmail.com. Follow us at Mr. Reticle on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok, and subscribe to us on YouTube. And don't forget to give us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't play with strangers. And don't trust your government. But um, Stop murdering people. Yeah. Um, don't be a pervert. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. If you're a pedophile, seek help. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, deep in the heart. I'm not, I'm not singing that. The sun's at night. We're big yeah. and bright. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Why do we all know that song? I know you love that. Why do I know? <laughs> Stay away from train cabooses. There it is. Yeah. Stay away. <laughs> Stay away from the caboose. <laughs> Stay away from the caboose. I like it. I mean, it's true. Just Stay fight. away fight. from the caboose. Stay away from the caboose. Yep. The end. Oh, fuck. Sorry, that was so long. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> You're so rude. You've gotten so rude lately. <laughs> oh, the audacity. Holy shit. Uh.